This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. This is episode number 252. And for today's episode, we are back in Bend, Oregon. It's been a few years since I've been to Bend. Last time I was here was uh, February, right before the pandemic. I popped up here and uh, did some stuff with the folks from Deschutes. Um, we're back now, and I had one goal from this visit to Bend, and that was to talk to Tanya Cornette from 10 Barrel. Welcome to the podcast, Tanya. Thank you. I feel so honored. You had a great year this year at the World Beer Cup. It was three three medals uh, for your beers this year at the World Beer Cup. Yeah, it was mind-blowing. I was so excited. I couldn't believe it. Um, of course, we have different team members that enter beers. We try to spread the love a little bit. But it just so happened that all mine hit, and I was the only one there. So luckily, all the Breakside people celebrated with me. <laughs> Well, just so I don't seem like I'm fame chasing people that win World Beer Cup medals, I do want to back up and say we started this conversation about the podcast back in January before World Beer Cup had ever happened. Yes. And, uh, you know, because literally your background in history is just so rich with medal winning, creative, technically well executed beautiful beers. Um, and so we're going to have a brewing conversation about all of those things. And then of course, within the magazine ourselves, when we have reviewed quick sour beers in particular in the past, you know, the, the crush series that you all produce. Um, I mean, it just can, it, it has absolutely killed with our reviewers, I think 95, 97s. And then of course, like 10 barrel, 15, 15 GABF medals. I mean, I think there was maybe one or two years of the last 10 when you all didn't win a medal. Uh, you, Doing, doing some okay things. You know, for my team, it's just something that we really like to do. Um, I would say it's not for every brewer to go and, you know, try and chase medals. And I wouldn't say we even chase medals. It's just something that we love the competitive nature sure. of this industry. And it's a friendly competition. Um, so we try to enter as many as we can. Helps you push yourself. Yeah, it does. The other thing that blew my mind is that uh, you mentioned before we started that you watch our online all-access video classes, uh, and that really just floored me. I didn't know how to uh, pick myself up after that one. Um, but hey, that's amazing. I love them. Anytime I'm working on something, I'll go through and see um, what classes you have available on that subject, and then I'll usually go and write a recipe based on the information that I previously knew, plus the new information. And it's been very valuable. Mind blown. I can't wait to talk about, uh, you know, all the kinds of things. Quick, quick sour beers, I think is what we're going to try to focus on. But of course you all are playing and experimenting in a whole bunch of different things. And I'm sure we'll get on some other topics after that. But first, what if you could chill your beer with a more efficient chiller? The answer, G&D Chiller's new micro-channel condensers. G&D's micro-channel condensers are highly efficient in hotter regions. Use a fraction of the refrigerant over traditional chillers, which provides less opportunity for leaks along with lower global warming potential. G&D Chiller's engineers are committed to green technology design while developing a more energy-efficient chiller for the brewing industry. Contact G&D Chillers today at gdchillers.com. Also, what if you could take your favorite recipes and make a non-alcoholic version without sacrificing the flavor, color, or beer quality? N.A. No problem. 
The Alchemator from ProBrew uses proprietary membrane technology to strip the alcohol from the beer without sacrificing all the elements like flavor and color that make the beer great. Are you ready to brew like a pro? Check out www.probrew.com to learn more about the Alchemator from ProBrew or shoot them an email at contactusprobrew.com today. ProBrew is a t- subsidiary of Technoblend, now a Promoc brand. So Tanya, let's start off the way we always do. Let's talk about your background in brewing. What, what was the spark for you with craft beer? And then, uh, you know, how did you decide that uh, brewing was going to be a thing you did and then, you know, to pursue as a career? Um, so around 1995, um, my husband and I had moved to Fort Collins and, um, that's an okay place. Yeah. It's an okay place, especially when you're in your twenties. Sure. sure. Um, That's my hometown. Uh, oh, nice. I, um, got a job at a place that had 40 different taps and I had been cocktail, cocktail waitressing for a long time. And so, um, I really knew, um, domestic and import. I was like, sure, what? Sure. And it wasn't even craft brew then. It was micro brew. It was just micro right. <laughs> and so it was like, okay, someone needs to explain this to me. So one of the girls sat me down and I was like, and I was never a beer drinker before that. And I was like, okay. I learned how to describe them um, to a customer. I learned how to describe them to myself. Um, and I also realized that there were a few that I liked and that I could drink. And so shortly after that, in Fort Collins, it seemed like at the time, everybody and their brother was into beer sure. and they were home brewing. And so that same girl, her boyfriend, gave us all the equipment to start home brewing, including a keg fridge. And I home brewed with my husband for like a month. And I just said, I can do this. I was reading The Joy of Brewing, uh, Joy of Home Brewing, and sure. I was like, I can do this. This is cooking. This is easy. Right. So basically, I went out and got a job at a brewery called HC Burger, and I still think I was kind of their mascot because I sure. was just so eager to learn, and um, any of the guys could push off their work to me, and I would be <laughs> perfectly happy doing it. Yeah. Um, but right now, that same facility is the Funkworks Brewery yes, in Fort exactly. Collins. Yeah. And um, it it was just one of those things that came easy to me. So basically I'd begged the brewmaster to teach me how to brew. And he came over one day and he homebrewed with me on a Saturday, which was amazing. And he said, you understand this. He said, I can't, I don't have a place for you right now. It's really expensive to train a brewer and I don't need a brewer, but I have a friend who owes a really big favor. And so basically, um, Jim Parker had just opened a a brew pub called Dimmers. And so I volunteered with Jim for about two years. So basically I was getting hands-on experience, um, writing recipes, brewing recipes, and then going to work and asking a million questions at HC Burger. So I learned really quickly. Um, After that, I moved back to Indiana, which is where I'm from. And I worked at a place called Oak and Barrel for, I think, three or four years, and then decided at that time that there were very few women in the industry, and I felt like if I didn't have an education, I was going to be overlooked, and so I went to Siebel. It was the first year that they partnered with Domans in Munich, so I got to go to Munich. Um, I came back and got the job at Ben Brewing Company, so I was the brewer there for 10 years and had lots of great success. Mm -hmm. It's a tiny brewery at the time. It was just a 10, well, really, seven-barrel brew house that I stretched to be 10 (laughs) um, upstairs of a pub. Um, 
they have a production facility now, but at the time I was really pumping out about 1200 barrels a year out of that tiny brew house. Mm. Um, then talked to the Timberall guys, they were getting ready to expand and they wanted someone that was only going to do like research and development. And for me, that's the gravy part of brewing sure, is sure. what I love. And so it immediately perked my interest and I decided that that's what I wanted to do. What, what year was that when you uh, jumped over to 10 barrel? 2012. And you've been here for the last, the here for the last decade. Yes. That's a lot of decades of, uh, yeah. if I'm starting to do the math and add them up there. Yeah. yeah so yeah. almost 11 years here. Yeah. Yeah. So you kick off R&D for, for 10 barrel and, uh, you know, what did that look like initially and what does that look like now? So I can remember, um, the first time I made a Berliner Weiss, which was the first metal I had with yeah. 10 barrel. Um, it was called German sparkle party. And like, I didn't even tell them that that's was what about like 2012 or so. Yes. Yeah. I didn't even tell them that that's what I named it. It was that early on. Like I had just right, right. made it and they were kind of like, what are we going to do with this beer? Nobody <laughs> in our pub is going to drink this beer. A sour beer. Yeah. Sure, sure. And even though I had been doing sours that at um, Ben right. Brewing Company and had success, it wasn't really something that the 10 barrel had had on, nor were their customers used to that. Did they come in and, and seek that? No way, right. not at right. all. So it was definitely um, one of those moments where it kind of expanded um, the repertoire of what 10 barrel was known for. Well, and little would you know that it would go on to become a mainline production beer uh, series that uh, the Ten Barrel now puts out on an almost national level, and uh, you know, it, for a lot of people, is you know, could be one of the their first entrees into the whole yes. world of of sour or acidic beer. And that really has been my hope all along. Even back at Ben Brewing Company, when I made, um, I think it was the second one that I had made called Ching Ching. It was like. This is for the people who don't drink beer. This is their first little like thing that's going to get them hooked. And they're going to start exploring different um, types and styles of beer after this. So I really just felt like it was a stepping stone. And when there was so much going on about like quick sours versus mixed culture, sure, sure. I was like, they're completely different. They're not even close to the same types of beer. However, the person who starts drinking um, a kettle sour might eventually be one of your customers. So I don't know. I wasn't really into that argument. I, I agree with you on that. I think that, uh, you know, we create things that are gateways and ways for people to get into this. And it's strange now. I mean, those gateways seem to be working in so many different directions that, uh, you know, there's not a, it's not a linear path here and that, uh, you know, people find their own way into craft beer in a whole bunch of different ways. And people are now finding their way through beer and through craft beer into lager again, uh, strangely enough, yes, you know, thankfully, right, right. You know, so, so, uh, you know, having a, a multitude of entry points for that is certainly makes quite a, a bit of sense. Yeah. You know, and at the same time, I mean, all of us seek seek diversity, seek interest and find those things that have, you know, flavor. And, uh, you know, you found a way to brew those interesting. I want to talk about then how you got, you know, what that kind of framework looks like then for 
quick sour beers, how you from, you know, very early on for a decade plus now have been working with that quick sour space to overcome some of the, the negatives and challenges within that making flavorful beers that are also clean, light, and easy to uh, add fruit and flavor to. Before we do that, as your brewery struggling to source or afford berry ingredients, historic heat waves devastated U.S. berry crops causing supply to dwindle and prices to skyrocket. That's why brewers are switching over to Old Orchard's Craft Concentrate Blends, which mimic straight concentrates but at a better price point and with a more reliable supply. Is it any surprise that Old Orchard's best sellers are raspberry and blackberry flavors? Reclaim your margins and order your craft concentrates at oldorchard.com slash brewer also working on a new sour beer fermentus the obvious choice for beverage fermentation is now offering an expanded range of dry bacteria for the production of sour beers to learn more about how fermentus can improve the quality of your fermentation and for the latest on their exciting new product releases visit fermentus.com i i didn't schedule that uh, that read that way it just seemed to align here and here we are talking about that same kind of thing so you know it's it's the early you know 20 teens and you're you know whether that was bend before as you start making uh you know the uh, beer that uh, um quick sour beer there uh, which they still make by the way yes they do it's still still a thing for them um you know how did you start formulating this idea for what a, a quick sour or a kettle sour or berliner weiss uh uh you know might taste like now how do you start building some uh kind of clean processes for making sure that uh, they didn't have some of the kind of weirder funkier characters that uh, i also seemed to define some of those beers back in the day um well this was in 2008, so 2008. I... 2008? Yeah. Wow. 2008 okay. was the We're first... going back even further Exactly. Than- the first time I brewed one, um, and that was inspired by the breweries, Berliner Weiss. Mm-hmm. I, it, was, it was during GABF. And they were only like one year old at that yeah. time, too. Um, it was during GABF, and I was at a media event, and it was like, because um, I had won um, Small Brewer of the Year, and so I had to be one of the speakers at this media event, and Patrick from the brewery was there, and he had his Berliner, and I was like, this is the base beer I have envisioned for so many things, but didn't know how to make, and Patrick was a little tight-lipped on exactly his process, but... <laughs> Will Myers from Cambridge Brewing sure, Company sure. was so kind oh, to just send me uh, step one, step two, sure, step sure. three, and walked me completely through the process because he'd already done it. Yeah. Um, and he's amazing for doing that. Um, he is amazing. Yes. He's a wonderful person. And so basically from there, it was just trying to figure out um, – where I was going to get my culture. Initially, Deschutes had a culture and they let me use it a few times. And then um, they ended up it not, I wasn't able to get it um, after that. And so basically, I just um, called uh, White Labs and I got a pitch of Del Brucky. Um, I've been keeping that same pitch <laughs> alive sure, sure. for 15 years. Oh. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of crazy. Um, and well, there's it, the through line for you then. Yes. Yes. That's why they taste so good. Um, but yeah, that's how it is. They don't make Delbrook eye like they used to, do they? I guess not. You know, I don't even think it's, 
it's not Delbrucky anymore. It has certainly um, morphed into other things. It's there's some yeast in there. Sure, sure. There's plantarum, buckneri. So I think. Oh, in your culture. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it's the kitchen sink, and it doesn't <laughs> taste the same if you plate it out, and yeah. it it doesn't. Um, okay, so for the grist. Um, I went back through some of our recipes, and um, basically, it's... You did research for this. I did. Oh, my god! I took some moments. This is why you're the best. <laughs> we do so many different beers <laughs> that I really had to go back and sure, look at the sure. recipes. If it's written down, it is not committed to memory. Um, so, basically, um, these are all kind of Berliner variants, sure. and depending on kind of the taste profile, we... and the fruit that we're going to use will certainly um, exchange different malts, but normally we'd, we'll we would use... We'll talk more about that because I'm curious about that, but what's the baseline look like? So normally we, we would use a combination of pills or pills in two row. And so that would be in a 55 to 75% of the whole of the entire grist. Mm-hmm. Um, wheat, uh, depending again on what our focus is, um, we will use five to 35% of the grist and that can be red wheat, uh, white wheat, torrified, flaked wheat, whatever kind of wheat you like, um, or a combination of, we definitely use combos. Um, we will usually add about 10% dextrin malt mm-hmm. because these beers like to really dry out. Right. And I personally, um, find that they can be a little astringent and harsh and certainly more one note when they're super dry. Um, and then six to 10% of oats, rolled oats, flaked mm. oats, really anything you want to put in there. Um, Why the oats plus wheat? Um, I feel I like mean, you're it, adding a lot of complexity. There's, there should be a reason for it, right? It can just help out with mouthfeel. Yeah. I think that that's one thing that gets a little bit overlooked mm-hmm. is these tend to have they tend to be very thin and um, a, even just a little bit of mouthfeel will help. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so for the fermentation. Um, well, well, let's let me talk before we go off of the subject of grist. I'm curious, like what would be some of the parameters in terms of thinking forward to the fruit that you want to add to a certain base that might shift some of the grist percentages or uh, what types of wheat you might use or or something along those lines. How do you think about that in your recipe development brain? So I'm just going to give you a, for instance, for, so for, um, I just developed kiwi and kiwi was pretty interesting just because kiwi is a delicate fruit. I wish everyone could see your notes. I've never (laughs) seen someone show up as prepared. I, I, I mean, I'm floored that you have put this much together just to be able to support this with data. It's amazing. Well, um, sorry, sorry for interrupting. It's fine. Um, kiwi is super delicate. It takes a lot of kiwi to kind of show itself in a beer. Um, and basically I needed to make a base and this, I would say before this, I actually developed strawberry at the same time and both of them needed a base that was, pretty much devoid of flavor Hmm. so those fruits could shine so basically um i used a little bit of rolled oats i used some a little bit of dextrin malt pilsner and wheat that's it just i wanted and that was one where i only used five percent wheat because Hmm. i needed nothing yeah for this 
fruit to shine, those two fruits to shine through. So that's one where you would really tailor it. If it's something that you might, um, you you're also working within production constraints and trying to hit certain, you know, budgets. And so just adding a ton more fruit, not necessarily or fruit flavor, what is just not going to, they have to work. Yes. You're working back from this. Yes. So usually it will be a pub, pub only release. There are a few that I have kind of some inkling that could possibly go to production. Mm -hmm. So that is all things that I do take into consideration. Um, we certainly, I, I'll want to use malts that we already have, unless it's one of those things where we're constantly struggling to get that malt. And then I'll try to sub in something else that could do the same thing. Um, but yeah, it's always top of mind when you're talking about production. Yeah. Um, yeah. So kiwi, super light, strawberry, super light. Super uh, light. You know, what, it would be, what would be a fruit that might need more heft to it to kind of, you know, support the, the stronger flavors in it? Sure. So something like raspberry. I mean, you can add some two-row in there. It's going to be cheaper if you don't have a two-row or a Pilsner silo, yeah. you know, it would be cheaper. Um, and it can also, it just helps kind of the heft of the fruit. Right. Um, tangerine was another one that I really needed to have uh, a light kind of touch on, but also felt like I needed some oats in there to mm. give it a little heft, to give it a little something more, to give it a little texture. Um Cucumber crush is but one. How much? How much is your, your typical kind of threshold for oats where you find that it starts making a, a difference in that mouthfeel? Um, well, I think for me, it's around the six or seven percent mm-hmm. range. If you go too high in oats, they do. They are harsh. Yeah. They can add some astringency, so you don't want to go too much. Um, also, especially when I first started building these recipes, I still wanted them to have this Berliner Weiss character. And it was still so early on in kind of the, the style um, in an, an American perspective that I felt like it was necessary to have a wheat component. Mm-hmm. So if you look at Cucumber Crush, um, the fruiting is somewhat low, but it does have kind of that characteristic wheat component in there. And how I achieved that was by doing a blender batch. So I do um, a higher acidity sour, and then I do basically an, a blender with it. So that would be done the second day to add to it. And, um, that will add that kind of wheat crackery component that when you read some of those old style guidelines, it certainly had it in there. It's not there anymore. Right. Right. (laughs) It's been stripped out, but, um, yeah, that was kind of the verbiage that I was going for when I developed that recipe and actually has a little bit of torrified wheat in there to exaggerate that so when you say, what does that look like? Then you're going to, so you're going to do two threaded then brew on this in order to, you know, what is the, this highly acidic version? How does that vary from the blender uh, batch? Um, basically they're very similar. Um, in that one, it's not a 50, 50 blend, which makes it that much more complicated for production. Sure. Um, but it's what tasted better. So you better. don't just keep, say, like a lacto-reactor, you know, pushing out a highly acidic beer that you then blend into, you know, a, you know more le- non-acidic brews? 
No, I, no. Okay. it couldn't be that simple. <laughs> there <laughs> are some larger production breweries. This certainly worked that way. Yeah. 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 It would have been a lot easier if I yeah. just had a base recipe and we had a different fruit to it, but I've just found that it doesn't always work that way. Oh, okay. Um, you know, you have a lot of things coming in with the fruit, you have sure, acidity sure. with the fruit you have. So um, every batch then of your, they're all different, they're all different. Yeah. Oh. They are Gosh. all different. <laughs> <laughs> so then what's that brew process look like? You've got these, you know, these different, these bases. And now mm-hmm. you, uh, you know, you, you know that it's going to be a two day brew process. Walk, walk me through that from, uh, you know, then mashing and, and hot side. Um, okay. So basically, um, I think most of your listeners already know the process. Sure. Um, for us, once we get it into the kettle, um, we will decrease the pH to 4.6 or below. I had some, um, they're basically like a damper made for the stack. So mm-hmm. we're able, we are able to shut off the airflow coming back. So you were legitimately kettle souring then in the, in the kettle and then cutting off to. Yes. Wow, okay. So even on production, we added two kettles several years ago. So they have that ability as well. Hmm. Okay. Um, uh, <laughs> well, that seems again, compared to some of the expressions that I've seen within other larger production, large production breweries. Um, that's, that's a lot of investment and a lot of time to give over to a process like this, especially since it's a two day process for you. Yes, exactly. I just felt like it was necessary. I didn't feel like, especially in tasting some of the other beers that are out there, like there's a sameness and I don't want these to be the same. I want you to get a mixed 12 pack and they're different and they're all exciting in their own way. I really feel like these beers have, um, this beautiful simplicity that is inherent. And I really wanted to showcase that and not make it just a reiteration of the same beer. Sure. Sure. Okay. So then, you know, we go through a a typical mash process on that grist and now, now, you know, you're boiling, you know, what's it look like? Okay, so I we do usually boil for just like five or ten minutes. Mm, we right. don't do a no boil. Like I said, we'll decrease the pH of the kettle to 4.6. Um, depending on how the culture is acting, that really dictates how much we pitch. And so we'll cool it to between 105 and 114. And then we look at our schedule and figure out how quickly do we need this to sour. And we really pitch for that. Really? So if it's something that we want to sour. So you'll over pitch if it's got to be really, really fast. If it's going to be quick. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so normally we'll pitch like, I guess recently we've been only been pitching 10 pounds into like, 13 barrels in the kettle and in 12 hours it's usually right about 0.65 total acidity. I know a lot of people go by pH, but when you're trying to recreate these beers over and over and over, you really need to start taking total acidity. It is the easiest titration. It's a no brainer. You can get the little kits from the homebrew shop. They're usually for wine. Um, and it really does kind of help your consistency so much. And especially with a product like Cucumber Crush, where when it gets a little bit more um, 
acidic, it goes pickly. Mm. So you really want to kind of watch that right, when right. you're when that's one of your core brands. Sure. Uh, so basically, um, once it hits the total acidity, and that's what grams per liter, or I believe so, something like that. Yeah. Um, so I, I do love that measure of titratable acidity or total acidity. Yeah, you because know, it's that same kind of thing, and you can start pegging it. And you know, it's fun to. I, I loved the Firestone Walker folks and Jeffers Acid Trip that he put together back in the day with. Um, that we've mimicked since then using, you know, because you can buy lab grade lactic acid, blend it, you know, mix it down and, you know, get it, dilute it down into various uh, concentrations and, and understand what those taste like at that kind of point and what those different acids, because if you also use vinegar, it's the same kind of thing. It's a fun way to go through that experience and start training even your own palate to understand exactly. the impacts of those levels of acidity. And then kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, um, the different flavors also have their own total acidity targets. Mm, right, because each fruit's going to bring its own exactly. acidity to that also. Exactly. So that impacts then some of the, the length of acidifying then for you? Sure. Ooh, okay. <laughs> like I said, it couldn't be easy. Um, so once it hits its... It was a, easy. Everybody would be doing it. Yeah, right? Um, when it hits its uh, TA, we'll bring it up to a boil. We boil for 30 minutes. Um, and one of the things that I've heard anecdotally, I don't know if it's true. I haven't seen any studies about it, but I have heard that, um, when you do longer boils, you're more susceptible to THP because of the melanoidin development. Mm. So we always keep our boil to 30 minutes. Yeah. Um, just enough to kill off that lacto and do what it needs to do and. Exactly. Um, we'll usually, the hops, the hopping rate will usually be 10 IBUs or less, mm -hmm. depending on the beer. But um, even that much, even up to 10 IBUs. Yeah, we will. Hmm. We will. We won't put it in um, until like 15 minutes uh, before the end of the boil or even in Whirlpool. Hmm. So, you know. How do you calculate IBUs in Whirlpool? Promash. <laughs> At zero minutes. <laughs> okay. Okay. What uh, what hops do you tend to find uh, work well with some of the, especially given that so many of these end up in with fruit? Uh, you know, I like anything with low myrcene, something that's not dank. Yeah. Um, I tend to use noble hops, but not always. Um, I do use Willamette quite a bit mm. and Perlay. And, um, but we have been using other things like Southern Passion. Yeah that we're able to get our hands on. But yeah, anything yeah. that's going to come across a little bit fruity, mm -hmm. I also experiment with. It doesn't always work, but yeah. it's such a low, 10 IBUs is so low, it's sure. really hard to know if that really, really adds to the fruitiness. Does it do anything else in the beer or does it, is it just there for kind of a, a little light structuring purpose? Exactly. For yeah. me, that's what it's yeah. there for. Yeah. Um, I have tried to make some darker kettle sours. They're not that easy because mm. you really have to look at not only, um, the contribution from hops, but also, um, any, any kind of astringency that you're going to get from malt. It really pops out with these low acidity beers. So I was actually thinking that I would revisit that because I haven't looked at that recipe in probably five years. Yeah. So it's something that like, wow, that. It was good and sure. it was, I think I had the structure there um, and possibly with kind of stuff that I've learned in the last five years, I could make it a lot better. 
generally consumers are not clamoring for dark, sour anything these days. It's true. Anything at all, you know, even the traditional Flanders beers. But uh, yeah, you know, yet at some point the, the tide will change. Yes. You know, all of these things are cyclical. Yes, absolutely. Um, so you adjust pitch and you adjust time, you know, and you adjust based on, you know, the fruit and the goal ultimately for this beer. Um, you know, you close your stack and you're souring in the kettle. You know, where do you go from there? So basically what will usually happen is I'll brew late in the afternoon and then, um, my coworker Ian Larkin will kill it in the morning at like four in the morning. Oh wow! So when we've hit the TA, and if it's something that we're going to do a blender brew, um, sometimes we will go ahead and mash in that blender brew, and it's just a regular brew at that yeah. point, and knock that out as well during the same day hmm. or the next day, right? Depending on the schedule, right? You've got this now sour wort. Um, what's the next process after, after you pop out of the hot side into the cold side? Well, I did want to talk a little bit about yeast. Sure. And so I know people ask a lot what we use. We use American ale too. It's super clean. Mm-hmm. I've had great ones made with Chico. Um, but we've also had great success with cold yeast as yeah. it will add like kind of a white grape note, um, mm. a little bit of fruitiness. And we have... You change it up based on what fruit and what the flavor goal is or just based on yeah, you get bored and you want to try something different? Well, it really depends on... Um, if it's going to go to production, then we wouldn't use the coal strain. Oh, okay. So it depends on if it's just a pub only and we have this idea and that's going to incorporate well. It also depends, I think, on who's making it. If it's me, I'll usually go ahead and use the American L2. If it's Ian, he'll usually use the coal because he has more experience <laughs> in that. Sure. But one thing that's nice with the coal strain is um, it is acid tolerant. And so we have been able to repitch. Mm. Whereas the American Ale 2, it looks like the most fluffiest, beautiful white yeast you've ever seen. And it's crap. No, can't yeah. use it again. You can't. <laughs> One time only. Um, so then after uh, after fermentation... Basically, one thing, a couple of things that How you. How long does fermentation typ- typically take on something like that? And is there a temperature that you shoot for, or is it all just pretty standard? Mm-hmm. Of course, it depends on the yeast that we're using. American right. Ale 2, two, I'll usually target the 66-degree range. Mm-hmm. Um, for Kolsch, So you're not really trying lower. to push any esters out of the fermentation. You're going with what it's got in it and whatever fruit brings to it. Exactly. Um, I really just want this to be a blank canvas that mm-hmm. I can paint on. Sure. Um, one thing we do struggle with is uh, sulfur with Mm. these beers. And so they end up taking more time. So, you know, your initial fermentation might be five days or four days even. Um, but to clean up the sulfur takes, you know, at least another week, week and a half. And also I think it's a little hard to kind of, um, to pick out diacetyl. Mm. Uh, so we always let it set a little bit longer because, as soon as you try to go early, that diacetyl is going to pop out later. And especially if your fruit contains any diacetyl, Mm -hmm. um, you really have to be careful and make sure that that's gone and under threshold because that fruit will just pop it. Yeah. I really had a big problem with that with, um, strawberry crust when I developed it because there's so much diacetyl in, um, strawberries Mm. that it would just pop right out. 
That's interesting. So any, any techniques uh, in particular to accelerate that kind of sulfur blow off for you? Um, yeah, I don't really know exactly what we're doing. (laughs) (laughs) It just happens like that. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with our culture. Um, and the fact that it does have so much depth and so many different things Mm -hmm. kind of living in it. Um, have you played in that culture out and uh, do you kind of have a rough idea of what's in there? You mentioned obviously over the years, it's just picked up a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. So, um, we have plated it several times and every time it's completely different. <laughs> I mean like okay. completely hey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. like the last Where's time keep picking stuff up from. I don't know, <laughs> but, um, we do have a brink for production. Yeah, yeah. Um, we have, it must be Ian. He must be sneaking things into the I culture. Don't know. And, uh, um, and then we have two different brinks that we have on our, our side yeah, yeah. and we've even, like our pub brewers also have some. So if something happens to all of them here, which it has and has happened yeah. where we, all of ours just kind of shit the bed. And really? then we had, luckily one of our brewers, our brewer in Denver, Kai had a six stall and was able to recover this. But I don't, I don't know what we would do. Cause we you'd really lost the entire culture. We did. We did. After 15 years, oh. we almost lost it. So it's one of those things that we really try to have it spread out in different locations. Do you bank just in it case. out there with any yeast labs or, uh, um, so we just haven't, we, so several times we have cultured from the slant. Yeah. And it's not the same. It's actually been yeah. horrible. Oh, no. Yes. And we threw yeah. away the beer because it was so bad. Huh. Uh, so it's not as easy as just growing a colony sure. and picking, you know, one sample right. of it. Because right. it's it's such a mixed culture that it all works together and it doesn't work just one component. Um and then when you try to grow it back up and they don't grow back at the same rate and you don't end up with the same. Yeah. It's thing. not the same. Yeah. Wow. Um, wow. So if it ever does die, I, I might die too. Oh, <laughs> you're not the first brewery that I've heard of dealing with that, but then I'm sure you won't be the last, but man, that is especially heartbreaking when you talk about something that's so crucial for this. Right. Right. I, you know, I think we've gotten more careful. Yeah. These things do happen for sure. We've had it go, go ropey on us, and that really? was certainly a so huge you've got scare. Some PDO then in there too. So when you stress lacto, it can go ropey. Oh, okay. So it doesn't necessarily mean that mm. PDO is in there. Yeah. Um, but they're the same family, so it can go ropey. So that was a bit of a scare. And um, luckily, I know some other breweries that that had happened to. They're like, oh, just heat it; it'll be fine. <laughs> And it was, it was fine. I didn't throw away the beer, but I did replace the culture Sure. <laughs> at that point. Sure. I sure. used a different brink. Um, I did not harvest off that one. Yeah. Um, it is a little disconcerting when you get a ropey kettle. Sure. Sure. Well, let's, uh, you know, let's maybe talk about, uh, you know, the, then getting into some of that fruit use. Before we do that, there's some exciting news about three new roasted malts from Best Malls, Chocolate Black and Black Malt Extra. These German malts are roasted in a gentle, fluidized bed process to create smooth, debittered flavors when compared to traditional drum roasted malts. They're perfect in Schwartz beers, box, alts, brown ales, porters, and stouts. Best Malls products are available exclusively through Country Malt Group in the United States. Contact CMG to try a free sample today. Also arrived mobile point of sale 
Power's places with personality arrived as streamlining business operations for the makers of craft with an all-in-one solution that was built with love by hospitality professionals. No contracts and no monthly fees make Arrived a no-brainer for your craft business. Go to arrived.com forward slash CBB to set up a free customized demo. That's arrived, A-R-R-Y-V-E-D.com forward slash CBB. A different kind of POS has arrived. So in the brewing process, where do we go after fermentation, Tanya? So after fermentation, we will usually um, transfer to a different tank with the flow meter. Mm. And that also really helps with consistency. So you can figure out exactly how much fruit you're adding per barrel. Uh, I like to set up a recirc and we will recirc. Re- we'll re- recirc with the fruit overnight. Um, we usually start off. Now are you recircing one tank or are you pumping through an additional vessel that's holding fruit? What does that look like? No, just recircling the same tank. Okay. And uh, overnight on fruit um, really gives us kind of a really good idea of what that fruit's going to give. It, I've heard of other breweries like sitting on fruit in a tank for two months or not two months, but two weeks. And it's sure, like, I don't sure. have two weeks. I have one day. Um, cause we're usually turning our tanks pretty quickly. Um, but if it's something I'm developing, I will tend to add fruit slowly so I can not overshoot right. the amount of fruit. You're almost bench testing as you go. Just as exactly. Yeah. I call it easing it in, easing um, it in, easing it in and it helps me kind of layer the flavors. So, one thing that's important for me is um, I try, especially with the Crush brand, is I try to make it the full picture of the fruit and not just a part of a fruit. Like you can have a beer that's perfect, perfectly amazing and it only have a slight hint of fruit, but that's not what the Crush brand is. Crush brand is single fruit and it is fruit in your face and it's the whole fruit like biting into the fruit and so i will try to layer um the types of fruit that i use to achieve that so i might use puree and freeze-dried um also wait well what yeah okay you're using fruit in multiple forms then to kind of achieve different different uh flavor and aroma goals through this definitely it's hard to get the full picture of the fruit um just by using puree or just by using juices it's like mostly there but not quite there like i want someone to drink a kiwi crush and be like oh my god i just bathed in kiwis that's how I want it. <laughs> sure. I want an undeniable sure. kiwi. I want an undeniable cucumber, undeniable raspberry. Yeah. Um, so then how do you, what do you start with? You know, what, what tends to be your first edition, you know, where you're going to set a baseline for it. And then how, you know, how do you then go to flesh out some of those flavors and aromas then from them to build that idea of the full fruit? Um, well, I think first I normally start with um, just, fruit puree and try to figure out sure. where where where's the hole that I need to fill in that. Um, when we did guava, we didn't have a hole. Mm. It was like amazing. Yeah. Perfect. And that's best case scenario. Um, when we did raspberry, that wasn't the case. Like the aromatics really suffered. It was jammy, but it was just lacking. And so we had to add some freeze dried. And then also it seemed like 
the acidity wasn't quite working the way I wanted to. So I added some hibiscus or when I did mm. strawberry, I realized that like it, it was lacking a little bit of that jamminess in that berry character. So I ended up adding rooibos tea. So trying to figure out whether it's by adding multiple layers of the same fruit or something that tastes like that fruit or something that can accentuate that fruit. Um, for instance, sometimes mango does a good job at like bolstering pineapple and, um, and apricot. Like it's, there's mm. something about it that right, just right. kind of helps bring the recognizable parts of that fruit forward. Huh. And so it's even kind of combining fruits in a way that will, it's subtle, but it adds to that total picture. Sure. Sure. Is there ever a point? And, and I know I've, I've talked to certain brewers like Corey at three sons about this in the past, not to point out Corey, a lot of folks do this, um, you know, layering in fruit and or puree along with some extract or some, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, generally typically natural extract and real extract, uh, you know, but just a high point aroma. Does that ever figure in your process? Yeah, definitely. I'm not afraid to use that, yeah. especially as an aromatic component right, because right. your flavors are already there. I just want to make sure that when you pour that in the glass, the aroma is contributing sure, sure. to the whole experience. And I think that aroma is um, sometimes overlooked and especially um, for those of you who want to enter competitions, that is one thing that that will make you stand out on the table every single time if you have the best aroma. Yeah. So it's really looking at all the details um, sure, sure. when you are entering into a competition. And I love that it's not one thing or the other. It's really just all of the things and finding the right blend of those that captures that kind of spirit, which means you, how do you go about tuning your own palate? I mean, because this is that becomes then the crucial piece in this. You and your team that are doing this need to have a very finely tuned palate to be able to understand what these things taste like, what these smell like and what, you know, what you should be moving towards. It's not like, you know, there's not just a, an equation that you can mathematically adhere to. Yeah. I wish it were that easy. Um, but it's not, it's not like, Oh, I can add a pound per barrel of fruit or two pounds per barrel. Right, right. I think for the Kiwi we're adding 16. Um, Oof. like it's silliness, <laughs> but sure. sure. Um, that's how much the fruit. finance folks must love that one. Oh, they're not happy with me right now. Um, but that's how much fruit it takes. Yeah, and yeah. it would be nice if you could just, um, you know, pour in some extract and that make up for it, but it doesn't. Right. So it's just achieving a balance. And I don't know how we have come to the palates that we have, but I think it's just through a lot of trial and error and figuring out what works for us. And like I said, crush is one thing and we have other beers that have other types of goals. It doesn't have to be in your face fruit. Um, it's just, that's what that's that, that series brand. is. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Uh, are there any, what was one of the most challenging fruits that you've worked with and, uh, you know, that threw you through the most loops and, uh, you know, kind of pushed you to the, the limits of, uh, you know, uh, where you were about to give up and then you found a solution to it? Uh, I think it was strawberry. Actually, yeah. I don't even think I know. You I know. struggled with that beer for so long. Uh, I don't think you're the only brewer that would say strawberry. Then. Strawberry is really yeah. hard. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, when in a 
brand like this, where there is so much fruit, it's so fruit forward. Um, basically, you want to use a concentrate because otherwise you're just adding so much liquid to the mm. beer that you're really watering it down. Um, so the concentrates that I kept getting, um, something about the way they concentrate strawberry was coming across as smoky. Yeah. And yeah. then also the... Um, I was using freeze dried and that popped the diacetyl. And so it was really a struggle to find out how to figure all that out. Mm -hmm. And um, we ended up finding a concentrate that ended up working, which huh. was an American concentrate, but um, it was really hard. Sure. Yeah. Sure. It's just that what CD phenol component that ends up being, you know, perceived then as smoke. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And it would, it would just smoke or plastic, even yeah, worse. Like just, absolutely, <laughs> it would hit me over the head, and yeah. I hated that beer for a lot, a long time. <laughs> yeah, it was like the bane of my existence. Yeah, I love that idea of of, of finding mango, a little bit of mango to support something else, mm -hmm. or a, you know, even a rubos tea to you know highlight something or hibiscus. Uh, you know, are there any other fun you know pieces like that you find? You know, just are particular complementary you know, to you know certain fruits. Um, I'm putting yeah, you on the spot. Right you there. are. <laughs> um, those were the, those are kind of my takeaways, yeah. um, that I can think of off the top of sure, my head. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Uh, are there any other, you know, really interesting, uh, you know, fruits that you've used in this process that you thought, uh, you know, created a, a really fun thing, you, you know, whether those are giant commercial successes or not, uh, you know, something that, uh, you, you found were a, a particularly uh, rewarding expression that you enjoy drinking. We have done a lot with this, um, type of beer and we've added teas we love jasmine chamomile hibiscus of course we've used botanicals um we've used rose juniper lavender uh spices we've used cin cinnamon cardamom coriander i i like to do spicy ones so yeah. um whether it's jalapenos or really yeah, okay. I love that. I love the sweet, sour <laughs> yeah, yeah. kind of ju juxtaposition. Um, peppercorns, gentian root, Indian sarsaparilla. Um, so one of the things that we have come up with um, within our team is how we trial ingredients. And so basically, if there's a beer, a base beer that we have, and this doesn't necessarily pertain only to sour beers. Yeah. It's all beers we do this with. Um, if we have a base and we're like, uh, it didn't quite turn out exactly how we wanted, or we, we kind of knew all along we were going to do something else with it, but we didn't have a clear kind of thought stream on that. We will, um, add a quarter ounce of ingredient, whatever ingredient we want. And so basically all I'll go to the, go to a culinary store and just buy everything, like small packets of everything. And so I have like a library of all yeah, these, yeah. um, spices, herbs, like whatever it might be. Um, and we will put a quarter ounce in a growler and that's roughly equal to a pound per barrel. So we'll fill that with the, the base beer, let it sit for two days, and then we'll strain it out and then do tastings and figure out what goes with this base. 
um, because every vase is different and some things are surprising. And we've also come up with a lot of really great combinations by after we've tasted through everything, like, oh, let's mix this together. Let's mix that together. <laughs> and some of them have... Sounds like a great Friday app, Friday happy <laughs> yeah, hour for absolutely. The, the brew team right there. <laughs> absolutely. It's been a huge tool for our team um, to be able to do that. And in that, we've also found like sometimes there are ingredients that like they almost make the cut. And so we continually, you know, we'll make sure that we try that with every single base because it's, it's so close, yeah, yeah. but just not quite there. Like we're going to find the right, <laughs> right base right. for this. That's fun. Uh, you know, and that happens just in a collective way. Do you, and everybody in the team brings some ideas to the table around those. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, a joint effort and, you know, kind of in that, um, I think one of the things that we've come up with we process a lot of fruit as well, yeah. especially for um, any of our mixed culture beers. And we zest, we hand zest a lot. We oh, will okay. spend days upon days upon days zesting. And um, we put it all in the freezer and that way when we need it, we have it. So anytime we have downtime, you know, we order cases. <laughs> you just of, zest your yes. own fruit in your yeah. downtime. We have different farmers. Boy, that, boy we, that brew team must love you. Oh, yeah. It's... <laughs> I do it too. Oh, we man. all do hey, it. Hey. We all do it. It's like yeah. you have 15 minutes, get in here and zest. Um, we have different stations set up right, in the break right. room, so it's super easy. Um, but, you know, one of those things that you, you kind of end up finding out about ingredients, and this is just an instance, um, is that citrus zest will pop the alcohol and pop the bitterness. So when you're, de when you're designing these recipes, you have to think about that. You have to think about, okay, what astringency am I going to get from the malt? What astringency and harshness am I going to get from the hops? What's going to come from whatever fruit I use? And then if I put a zest on top, what's that going to do? Um, so it's like looking at the whole picture of it. And, you know, sometimes um, you don't have that knowledge the first time you brew it right but you definitely have it the next time sure sure yeah sure. it's usually about the third time i brew something i'm really starting to work the kinks out and figure out where all of those things need to be it's never yeah. an easy you never <laughs> right, make right, you, right. you never make the winner the first time i wouldn't say never but what would be the most complex fruit where you've used it in the most different forms try to like kind of flesh out you know and what would be Typical. I mean, obviously, you know, like you said, uh, you know, uh, some fruits you can use just one form of fruit, um, but others are going to use multiple forms. Is there one where you just kept having to try new things in order to, to just make it work? Yeah. Again, it goes back to strawberry. Uh, back to strawberries. Every time yeah, yeah. all leads road, all roads lead yeah, back to strawberry. Sure. Yeah. That's just, that was just, uh, it was horrible. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Well, then, uh, you know, in terms of finishing, how do the, how do these beers finish after that fruiting process? Uh, you know, and after that that you know flavor addition process, uh, I imagine that you're trying to, uh, you know, make sure that no solids get through there. Um, you know, but while at the same time maintaining the you know brightest, punchiest fruit flavor that you've now worked so hard to achieve. Right. So on our side, we'll use Biofine. Production side um, does run through a centrifuge. Um, and basically, if it's just going to the pub, it stays 
cold the whole time yeah, and yeah. we're fine with putting it out in the pub. Um, but if it's going to be packaged, we do have a pasteurizer. And I really do think that it's important to tell everyone that you really don't want to add fruit after fermentation unless you have that ability right. because it is really important. And um, to not the, create cans and crowlers that blow yeah, up on people. For sure. I mean, it's certainly more dangerous in bottles. Um, that's the last thing you want to do is hurt someone. Um, and it's a little less dangerous in cans, but even the visual of having a can all blown up, I don't think does anyone any benefit. Sure. Sure. Now is that inline pasteurization or is it tunnel pasteurization after packaging? How does that typically look? Yeah, we have a tunnel. Yeah. Well, you're getting at the last possible point then. Yeah. yeah. And really we needed that. If we were going to put crush out into the market, um, that was kind of a must have. Well, we've talked a whole, like we're, <laughs> almost to the end here. Uh, and I, I, I told people we're going to talk about other, other beer styles too, but I, I'm actually curious uh, on the, on the crush or on the, the fruited kettle sour Berliner style. Um, you know, is there something, what, what's your, you know, what's that windmill that you've been tilting at as Don Quixote trying to conquer, but, uh, but have yet to find the, the thing that actually, that just makes it really work. Well, I think, Certainly, I'm always trying to come up with new and exciting flavors. And I think, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the flavors I would like to have, those fruits are impossible to get. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's right now fruit is so expensive. Sure, sure. And um, all that has to be kind of weighed when you're doing one of these recipes, especially one that could potentially go to production. So that's something I think about all the time. And I also want something these beers to be approachable. And it was interesting when I did guava, like, is that approachable enough? And I think nowadays, you know, it's in pog. It's yeah. People yeah, have yeah. guava, but when I was it's first a funky fruit, though. it is like, funky yeah. and it definitely, it has some funk on the aroma and that doesn't always, um, some people just don't like it. Right. So it's figuring out. You can get a little bit plasticky too. And absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely got some like tropical bitterness to it. That, yes. Uh, and not just pure sweetness. Sure. Yes. Um, passion fruit is another one that's just really hard to work with because right. you have to mitigate that bitterness and the sulfur that comes with it. Um, and, you know, when you're talking about fruit sulfur, Sometimes it blows off, sometimes it doesn't, yeah. sometimes it sticks around. So you really have to figure out how to get um, the beer, the base beer, well below threshold so you have a little bit of wiggle room. Mm. Um, and, you know, sometimes the little bit of sulfur is still there, but it does act in pleasant ways. Right. Right. It will add some brightness as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't really have that one windmill. I feel like I'm constantly churning them out all the time. Sure. Because sure. I want to make sure that when we do add more flavors um, to the crush lineup that I have them in queue. Right. And I'm not like stuck trying to put something out without the time I need to vet it. Um, so Usually I'm working a couple of years in advance, making sure wow. that these beers have plenty of time for me to get them perfect before I put them up as this is a possible next one for That's the quite lineup. a process. And of course, you know, you've got pubs to test them out in, uh, you know, a number of those, you know, to do that in, in a place for, you know, for your own market research, 
uh, and feedback and, uh, you know, all of that. How does that feedback process work? I mean, do you hear that back from, uh, you know, customers then out there at the, you know, they're tasting some of these things and so then, you know, go back into some of the calculations about how things work or. Sometimes we do. Um, The managers certainly keep a log that um, they let us know, like when someone has strong feelings uh, for or against a beer, for sure. Um, We depend on the employees a lot. Yeah. Um, Just internally, whether it's packaging people, whether it's brewery people, whether it's marketing people, like we really depend on their feedback. At Ben Brewing Company, I was in the pub all the time. And so there was constant feedback. And even though we're close, we're in the next building. It's just not the same. It's not the same kind of 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 like face-to-face customer interaction that I've had in the past. So it's, it is a little bit challenging. Um, but basically I just yeah. take feedback wherever I can get it. And, sure. uh, you know, a lot of me entering beers in competition is really just to get the feedback. Like it's huh. great when one hits, but it's not necessarily the only reason why I'm sending a beer to competition. I want to know how it lines up in front of a whole, table 12 different versions of basically a very similar beer and well you must be making it to the final table to get the good notes then aren't you (laughs) (laughs) sometimes sometimes all right uh well let's let's talk about another beer style you know again you you don't just brew quick sour kettle sour berliner style like beers what what's another beer style that's close to your heart that you've really enjoyed experimenting with pushing and um, you know, finding the possibilities within. I've had a lot of fun with pastry salads and, um, I would say I struggle with this a little bit because I think it's pretty socially irresponsible for us to put this much sugar into one product. However, I do love them in small amounts and that's always hard when you're in a brew pub environment. If you're only going to sell a small, a small cup, um, or glass, or even if someone's just going to taste it in a taster and not order it. Um, so that's always a struggle, but they are beers that I love and I love the combinations. I've always loved those kind of chocolate combinations. I love to go through the chocolate aisle and look at all the different candy bars and all the combinations. And for years, even when I was in at Ben Brewing Company, that's one of my favorite ways to get inspiration. Sure, sure. I tend to make them with, they probably are not as viscous, even though I've certainly tried to get that viscosity in there. I think there's some things to it that are a little tricky. Um, Like what? Well, we have done the like boil overnight thing. Sure. And it does add viscosity, but it also can add a smoky note if you have too many dark malts in there. Um, And just like this burnt sugar component. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, we're still trying to figure that out. And depending on kind of basically, I know some of the other people that you've had on here, I've mentioned kind of having a library of beers. Um, I would say I'm, I'm very intrigued over having a library of beers and it's something that we have space here. And so I've been fortunate to be able to, um, have lots of beer that's in process yeah. set to the side for blending. I, 
I really love blending beer. That is a passion of mine. And it, it really doesn't matter what kind of beer it is. Sure. I love being able to say, oh, let's put two kegs of this in and let's put a pallet of that in and, yeah. you know, really build a beer from the base up. Um, that is probably, I would say, something that I'm hugely passionate about hmm. and love to do. I don't get to do it very often, probably only a few times a year. But when I do... It's great. Um, we normally talk about that library of beer in terms of like blending stock from a barrel aging program, but you do that amongst finished beers that have other ingredients in them and start blending between those beers. I will. You will. I will absolutely. You're building that library that. right yes. now. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be a library of, sure, sure. of barrel aged beer, although that is a large part of our library. Yeah. Um, if it's something that you know, particularly can stand up to age if it's an old ale. Um, trying to think of what else we have in there. Of course, something like a barley wine. I mean, all these can be used as a component to this blended beer. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't know it in the end that's in there. If right. it's, you know, we have Belgian quad that we stash away. We have, I have like a 16% quad that I've done that has been a good blending component. Mm. Sometimes, you know, you pull beer out of barrels and kind of going back to what we said about the fruit, like it's just lacking something. It just needs something in there to round it out. Um, chances are I've squirreled back a couple <laughs> kegs sure, of something sure, sure. that I can pull out and it's going to do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to fill that hole or that void. Um, but yeah, I love doing that. It's one of my favorites. Um, some other things that we've been working on are, um, cocktail inspired. I think everybody's sure, kind of on this train. Yeah, yeah. We've been doing it for uh, gosh, quite a while now. Yeah. Of course we make mixed cocktails here. That's, um, one of our package products, um, many package products, um, under that line. But, um, we love to do gin barrel aging and then transfer that into a cocktail inspired beer. Um, gin barrel aging. Yes. Just gin in particular. Well, I mean, I if, imagine there's more than that. But yes, but for the you cocktail, think the gin barrel aged stuff just lends itself to cocktail uh, inspired beers. In my mind, yes. Uh, as a gin fanatic, I, I don't disagree with you on. Yes. Yeah, we love it. Um, we tend to do that a lot when we're thinking um, or getting inspired by a cocktail. I mean, of course, um, kind of when you have whiskey barrels around, that's kind of an easy cocktail inspired. I just did a, um, a basically cocktail inspired uh, old fashioned. So the base was a Belgian quad and it's with the muddled fruit. So it has maraschino and orange zest that turned out really well. So those are kind of the things when we think about cocktails here. And of course it's really easy to go tiki inspired cocktails, sure, sure. especially cause we have fruit laying around yeah. all the time. But yeah, I would Tiki so hot with the brewer, the brewers these days. I mean, I'll admit to spending plenty of time at Tiki bars with brewers around the country over this past year or two or three or four. It's been a while now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not surprising to find that. inspiration. No. Well, let's let's zoom out a little bit and let's talk about, uh, you know, the near term future and the long term future. What uh, you know, what you know, in terms of. Uh, your R&D side of 10 barrel, you know, what are you excited about in the short run? And, uh, you know, where do you see the the longer term future for, for what you're doing here? 
recently, my team got its own brand called Tiny House. And so the- You get your I, own brand? We did. Wow. After much begging on my part. Um, and wh- why create a separate brand for your team? Well, I think that what we have going on is pretty special. And if it's not in package, a lot of people don't get it. Um, there's even a lot of people in Oregon who, you know, might not visit our pub, but if they could get their hands on one of these beers, um, you know, it's pretty special for us when that happens, especially when we get feedback, uh, that it has happened. I recently had a friend who, um, works at a a brewery in, um, Seattle and he visited a brewer in Portland who had a case of my beer (laughs) and he came back and told me how much he loved it. And I was ecstatic. I was just like, wow, you just never know who's drinking your beer. And the fact that that particular person was excited enough to give it to another brewer, like that stokes me out for sure. Yeah. But, um, so the idea was behind the name the brand is tiny house. Yeah. It's called tiny house because, um, at our brewery, we are, a brewery within a brewery. Um, we are basically autonomous and, but we are right under production. Like my brew house is right under yeah. the production 50 barrel brew house. And, um, it's just the brewery within a brewery is also, um, marketing was able to get in on it and like collaborate. you the associated dwelling unit. You're not the main house, but exactly. Uh, you know, you get to be built without all the permits because you're just small enough and you can kind of tuck in in the back there. Exactly. See it, see it. And everyone's excited about tiny houses right now. So. Well, until they live in them. Yeah. <laughs> True that. <laughs> um, uh, so marketing, because 10 barrel branding is all very much the same right, and right. very clean lines. This was their chance to do some of their own personal artwork. And so basically we get to have labels like the cool kids have, and <laughs> we're all really excited about the next label how coming you, out. How do you differentiate that then from, you know, some of the primary, uh, 10 barrel beer? Um, well, you just do weird stuff that, uh, that's smaller and as a different, you know, more niche audience or absolutely. And it might be beer that would never, well, not might. it always is beer that would never make it to production. It's they're too expensive. Sure, they're sure. too labor intensive, whatever, whatever the reason might be is like, yeah, I know you guys would like to have this, but right. that's, it's just not going to happen. And so these are beers that, you know, started off in the pub, um, gained a small cult following. And if it's ones that we particularly love, then we'll bring it into this line. We're only releasing five a year, but they really are from the heart and they really take a lot of dedication and time from my team. Yeah. And it really, yeah. I think it presents the best of what we can do. Sure, sure. Yeah. And I can tell you're excited about it because you're even wearing Tiny House uh, yeah. t-shirt right now, right now. What's the what's the long term for you? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think that my team just we just keep on keeping on and yeah. we just continue to learn. I think learning is a big thing um, that a lot of especially older brewers get really stuck in their ways. And I've tried to really focus on continuing my education. Um, I love a lot of these new trends that come out because every time I do a deep dive, I learn so much and then I'm able to take what I've learned and, um, you know, apply it to either beers I'm working on or beers that I've 
done in the past to make them a lot better, maybe closer to that vision that I originally had, but um, for whatever reason wasn't able to achieve. But um, I, I just feel like this is such an amazing time in brewing where we have so many ingredients available, all these new hot products that are available, um, really just add so many tools to the toolbox. Fantastic, beautifully said, and a great place to wrap this up. GD's micro channel condensers are highly efficient in hotter regions. Fill like a pro with Pro Fill can fillers from Pro Brew. Think outside the puree box with Old Orchard's Craft Concentrate blends. Fermentus is now offering an expanded range of dry bacteria for the production of sour beers. Try new chocolate, black, and black malt extra from Best Malts, available exclusively in the U.S. through Country Malt Group and arrived mobile point of sale powers places with personality as always please go to beerandbrewing.com click on that subscribe button support what we do and allow us to keep bringing you great conversations like this very one um you know hey and if you are so moved click on that uh, all access subscription get access to our new videos every single month um, and watch them just like Tanya does to stay on top of what brewers are doing and uh, you know some of the new techniques and new ways that, that people are finding to make phenomenal beer. Tanya, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. If people want to learn more about Tiny House, uh, Ten Barrel, some of your, uh, your the stuff that you're doing and some of the, the beers that you're pioneering here, uh, where do they find you? Tenbarrel.com. That's easy enough. Uh, it's been wonderful to talk to you about brewing. Cheers. Thank you so much. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.